welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Bartnika. So Sarah, uh, we're recording this on uh, January 11th, and we just got the most recent inflation numbers from the US today. And I'm sorry to say that inflation is rising again. After many months of cooling, it looks like we aren't quite done with this inflation problem, at least if the American data carries over to Canada. Yeah, which is, um, I guess, no surprise because the American economic data has been very strong for the last year. I think that's been yep. one of the biggest surprises. So Yeah, so we're back up to 3.4%. And, you know, I think this is a scenario that a lot of people have warned about that, you know, this last mile of inflation is going to be a lot tougher than getting it down from you know, 7%, 6% to to where it is today. This is something that a number of people that we've talked to on this show have set as a possibility. Um, so I think it's good to do a little check-in on where we're at in economic policy heading into, uh, heading into the new year and just get a sense of how economists are looking at this and how the people who build portfolios the experts. are looking at this. The experts, because it's certainly not us. Uh, not if you look at my... <laughs> stock portfolio. Unfortunately, we do have one of the world's foremost experts on this to talk it through with us today. Roger Aliaga-Diaz is Vanguard's Global Head of Portfolio Construction and Chief Economist for the Americas. Roger, thanks so much for joining us on Free Lunch. Happy to be here. Pleasure. Okay, so let's start out with a simple question. What do you see for Canada's economy in the year ahead? Yes, um, so... uh, the Canadian economy has been already experiencing the, the impact of the higher rates from the Bank of Canada, right? We saw Q3 negative. We, we, we expect Q4 also to come, to come negative. Um, and that slow and probably will persist through the first half of the year. Um, so we, we, we expect the unemployment rate to continue increasing, um, perhaps to about 6.5%. Um, and economic growth to slow that to continue slowing down to, to about one percent for for 2024, right? Um, and and that's one of the reasons why, um, along with the fact that inflation keeps coming down, that would allow the the central bank, the Bank of Canada, to actually cut rates uh, by about 200 basis points to to really support the economy um, and help ease the the transition. As we wait to figure out what the Bank of Canada does next, I'm wondering how our market's making sense of what's happening in the economy and if any kind of investment themes have emerged for 2024 that are different from last year. Yes, I mean, the, the one thing we've been focusing at Vanguard is um, a little bit almost beyond the, the, the uh, hiking cycle and the, and the central bank cycle in the sense of once um, the question has been, as the central banks cut rates, at what level are we going to settle, right? What will be the normal level of interest rates going forward? The question being, are we going back to the pre-COVID era of zero rates, or we have entered a new regime of, of, of higher rates that is here to stay? Um, and our view is that is, is the latter. Um, we call it the, the return to sound money. We expect that uh, beyond the, the recession and beyond 2024, um, we uh, real interest rates, inflation adjustments will be positive. And that's a, a very important development for investors and, and for savers uh, in the financial markets. And what's driving that? Why, why are, do you think rates are going to stay elevated? 
Yes, I mean, um, we have seen some uh, supply and demand drivers. Uh, at the end of the day, the interest rate, the equilibrium interest rate in the economy is, is really the balance between supply and demand forces in the capital markets, sometimes global capital markets. Um, and uh, after COVID, we saw many things changing, right, from the previous decade. Um, on the on the saving side, um, we went from um, uh, the population aging is, is something that in general, for most developed markets, is a factor that is going to limit the supply of saving, right? As more people retire um, and start drawing from the savings, there is um, less less supply of capital. That's more of a secular trend that was happening even before, right? But this is accelerating in some developed markets. Um, mm. The other big source of savings that, man- that kept interest rate depressed for 10 years was the global imbalances. We used to talk, remember, about uh, China surpluses, oil exporting surpluses. Those imbalances have almost worked themselves out to the large extent. And in fact, China is no longer amazing, like um, large amounts of, of savings that are trying to invest in treasuries. It, in fact, they are fighting the opposite. There is capital outflows of China, right? So that was another big thing that changed with the deglobalization that happens after COVID, right? Um, to me, the most important driver of this is really on the demand side, on the demand for capital. Uh, essentially, uh, those that borrow and the biggest borrowers of capital globally are the governments, right? So the outlook for the budget deficits are really, really a, a key driver that is very different from the previous decade. Um, of course, we saw uh, during COVID, governments have to step up to help the economies recover from the pandemic with large stimulus programs. Debt globally jumped by almost 20 percentage points of, G- of global GDP. But it's not just that. I mean, going forward, we're seeing a, a much more complex environment. We're seeing defense budgets increasing across most economies because of the very complex geopolitical environment we're in, which is not expected to, to unfortunately, to, to, to improve anytime soon. We saw a clear commitment to climate policy and green investments that will be funded publicly as well. Uh, and the third aspect, uh, that is, is impinging on the budget deficit is uh, the whole reshoring, right? The whole um, uh, process of strengthening supply chains, particularly in strategic sectors. We saw a lot of this in the US last year, right? With the industrial policies from the Biden administration. So these type of things will be more common. Uh, and those are fiscal priorities that become almost national strategic priorities. It's not really easy to work those out via fiscal austerity programs or debates in Congress. So there is kind of a commitment to, to those, and those are pushing rates uh, higher on a on a permanent basis. Can we tease that out a little bit, like how the demand for governments and the spending by governments correlates to higher interest rates? Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. Um, essentially, um, the, the um, in the capital markets, everybody that is borrowing and 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 uh, in order to fund spending is basically pushing interest rates higher, right? Um, but by uh, the largest borrowing unit in the, in the economy is, is the government uh, whenever they have to uh, finance the excess spending over taxes, right? So the budget deficit, the gap between spending and taxes is really the, the, the annual borrowing. And that's, um, uh, as we can see in many countries, that has basically increased and is not expected to, to, to decline too much, right? So that that's in in our view is, is one a big is a big driver of the interest rate going forward. Uh, 
in the uh, 2010s, right, the decade, the decade prior to COVID, um, uh, there, there was more of a, a fiscal austerity debate, right? There is, was more an attitude of, of how to restrain deficit. We saw, remember, the debate in Europe. Uh, one of the reasons the European debt crisis extended for so long is that the recommendation was not to spend and not to stimulate too much. All that psychology uh, changed completely with COVID. With COVID was like, okay, whatever need to do to actually support the economy. So you see even bipartisan support to, to stimulus programs. You see bipartisan support to infrastructure investment. And, and some of the things I was referring to before, uh, those are national strategic priorities. Again, there is no much debate about fiscal austerity. I, even in a year of elections that we're heading into, uh, I, I think one uh, thing that is absent from those debates is fiscal austerity. And that tells you something. Yeah. I want to ask you about the past couple of years and the cycle that we've just been through. Uh, you know, we had a lot of big name economists as recently as, you know, last year, 18 months ago, saying we're going to need unemployment at 8%, 9% for many years to get inflation down. That doesn't really seem to be the case. The soft landing scenario seems much more likely than it was. Uh, what sort of lessons do you think that economists and analysts should take away from this cycle? Oh, it's, a, it's a great question. I mean, um, as an economist, I'm telling you, it, it, it has been a really head scratcher there, as, as we say, um, because uh, it's, monetary policy is not working as it should. Um, the interesting thing, central bankers are not answering that question either, right? Why five, five and a half percent rates where in, here in Canada or in the US are not hurting the, the economy, right? Um, uh, uh, well, we the, the way we see it, um, to some extent, there are sectors that have been impacted. Really, in Canada, for example, there has been a little bit of a slowdown that that we do see linked to to monetary policy. But mm -hmm. uh, in the U.S., which has remained extremely resilient, like we're tracking to two and a half percent growth for 2023, that's well above trend. Like the, the normal trend in the U.S. is one eight. Um, so you have this very restricted monetary policy, yet growth is above trend. Um, we are talking about four supply shocks that really helped the Fed and really helped the U.S. economy. So um, it's kind of a combination of good policy with good luck, right? Um, and, and the four big shocks that we saw last year that explain why the GP uh, in the U.S. kept growing um, is one, the, the massive um, uh, incentives to private investment from the industrial policies I was mentioning before, um, the things like the infrastructure bill, the CHIPS Act, Right, um, the, the word um, and the Inflation Reduction Act all injected massive amount, amounts of, of, of tax incentives and, 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 and uh, subsidies to promote private investment. That really expanded the production capacity of the US economy. We have a second, also completely unexpected shock, which was on the labor supply. Uh, we saw it a little bit here in Canada through immigration as well, but um, in the U.S., not only immigration, but also some of the early retirements from COVID, people 55 and older, actually started coming back or, or not retiring as much as they retired during COVID. In all, both sources added, uh, we estimate, more than 1 million extra workers uh, relative to what we had expected. And that kept mm. um, the unemployment rate at 3.7, uh, where at 3.7 in the U.S., uh, without that inflow of workers, unemployment would have gone down all the way to 3.5 or even lower, pushing more pressure on wages. Um, so that was another very favorable shock for, 
for for the Fed and, and for the and for the US, right? And third shock, oil prices. We're in the midst of the most complex geopolitical scenario you can imagine. And if I had to forecast oil prices and you tell me there is a war in Ukraine and, and Russia is involved, one of the biggest oil producers and Middle East as well, um, it, I would forecast oil prices going up, yet oil prices went down last year. That, again, was a huge help to, to, to the economy. And the last one of the four shocks uh, I would add is the China disinflation factor. As, as, you, as you know, China has been uh, uh, very weak in, in 2023 and with not much stimulus from the government, exporting this inflation to, to the rest of the world. If you remove those four factors, the U.S., in our estimates, will have grown pretty much at 0% for the year. So literally, mm. those factors explain the, the bulk of the, of the growth and the resilience we saw, right? Um, so, I mean, I guess the lesson learned to you, your question is, I mean, there's always... Uh, unexpected factors and and some sometimes those can completely trump the the the, the, the forecast. Um, one exercise I always do as an economist and I, I talk to my team is uh, it's always uh, good to know where you were wrong and why. Um, the forecast will always be uh, incorrect uh, for most of the time, but as long as you can keep track of of your rationale and your approach and and you explain what happened and why it was different. Uh, that's an important aspect. Do, do you think that that has forced uh, economists, or I guess I can, you can only speak for yourself, have you changed how you think about inflation coming out of this cycle and how you, you forecast it, uh, you know, in a fundamental way? Yeah, I mean, um, there are two, two views there. Um, on the one hand, like, you could explain um, th these um, surprisingly good inflation reports could be explained by something that, we cannot see yet, which is a productivity boom. And that's something, it's early days. Uh, so I don't want to say we're forecasting mm -hmm. it. And by the way, economists are not mm -hmm. good at forecasting productivity booms. That's the only thing that uh, we know we are not good at. But if you were starting, if you're in 1994, right, when uh, internet started to taking off and the IT technologies, you wouldn't know that you were about to experience one of the most significant productivity booms in the US that really depressed inflation and kept growing going for, for a decade. Even with the mm. uh, dot-com bubble of, of 2000, 2001, yet the growth kept going all the way to 2004, right? If Gen AI is something similar to what internet and IT was back then, you, like, we could look back five years from now and say, hey, now I see why inflation was coming down like, like, like it was. It was really this supply-side force really taking over. Um, Unfortunately, productivity is incredibly volatile, and, and it's, it takes time until you see it in the actual national accounts and in, in the numbers. But but you, we all see it, right? That we all, all see this this coming true. Maybe the market in the US, the the max seven, right? There are there is some seed of truth in that rally that we have seen uh, last year, right? So th hmm. that's one lesson: is like don't forget about those productivity booms that come at unexpected times. So good news is also part of the of the possibilities here, or, or we tend to be thinking about bad news. Um, but, but there is another aspect that I think a lesson learned, which is also, to me, the surprise was like how, how well behaved were the inflation expectations. Like in the midst of the worst inflation numbers, if you look at the long-term consumer psychology about where prices were going to be in five, 10 years from now, like um, they didn't move too much. And that was telling... The, the market, the consumers, investors really believe and have credibility on the central banks on doing the, the job. And that's a mm. very powerful tool the central banks have. 
Uh, in the past, the only way to bring inflation down is to really like break the economy, right? Increasing the rates, slowing the economy. Now, central banks, all they need to do is to put the uh, the forward guidance that they are willing to do anything that it takes, and then the market believes it. And because of that, then mm. inflation doesn't happen. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like right. deposit insurance in the banks. That's because it's there, you don't have the bank run, right? Okay, if you have bank, uh, central bank credibility, you don't need to actually break the economy to uh, obtain the result. Probably we all, uh, we knew it from economic theory and the books. We didn't know it would work so well this time. Interesting. What about the path to 2%? Um, inflation has kind of gotten sticky now, I guess. Like what's working against maybe Canada achieving 2% inflation and, and what are maybe the factors in favor of that? Yes, I mean, the, the uh, we were talking about the last mile of the inflation problem being probably difficult and more bumpy, right? Like uh, we got very good gains uh, in that surprisingly good ones, but <laughs> uh, and that's a little bit the, the problem I have with the soft landing view. If you say, well, the uh, the unemployment rate is going to stay at the current levels, for example, in the US, the market will remain at full employment and the central bank will start cutting rates, <laughs> then I, I, I see uh, challenges and headwinds there in terms of why not wages are not going to pick up a little bit more, right? So all the gains that we saw may reverse if, if we see um, a, a very aggressive cutting uh, uh, campaign from central banks when the, the, the economy remains at full employment. Um, different is our view. Our view is that we are going into recession and the unemployment rate goes up and then central banks cut. Um, but it's the higher unemployment what ensures in, that inflation is going to stay low. The soft landing view says, no, no, inflation is going to come down without unemployment and the central banks are going to cut rates. And you're like, um, but then the risk of that inflation fire rate 19 is, is, is kind of high, right? Uh, interestingly, it did happen back in history in the US. 1967, uh, people talk about the soft landing mistake. Uh, the Fed tried to play out the, the soft landing. And what happens like nine months later after the Fed fund rate fall, like, fell like 200 basis points, like inflation picked up again. And then they, they had to actually revert back the the the, the uh, dovish policy, if you will, uh, have to increase rates and then end up being the 1970 recession. Um, so not saying it's going to happen, but it's a risk that they feel the central banks are not adequately um, uh, playing. Like they're almost playing that, that risk too much. The market com has completely bought the soft landing story and doesn't, doesn't uh, have some price in that risk at all. So imagine if, if the central banks need to go back and walk back a little bit the Dovish rhetoric and start talking about uh, uh, keeping rates for longer, that would be a huge market shock. So I'm concerned about that one. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's a good place to to end off here because I know you've got you've to run. But if you're an ordinary investor thinking about what to do with your money in 2024, uh, you know, given what you've just said, what do you think is the smart approach? Yes. I mean, uh, so one, one thing we've been, we've been conveying to investors is that there is a positive aspect to this uh, uh, sound money environment or this high rate environment that we're uh, talking about that is for, for savers is good news. It's not good news for borrowers, but it's good news for savers in the financial markets, right? So we see the outlook for bonds is much, much better than what it used to be before COVID, right? 
positive real rate of return, right? Uh, you, you, you're getting compensated more than inflation. So bonds are back. Uh, we do uh, think that the balanced portfolio uh, that for two years did not work, and we got a lot of, of heat for that. But the 60-40, actually, if you, in a forward-looking basis, it looks very um, a, a very good for, for investors, both because bonds are going to now return much better than before, and the correlations as, as inflation goes and inflation like uh, settles at 2%, the diversification side of combined equities and bonds is going to return as well. So that we're going to, with the plain vanilla 64 recommendation, we think would work well for, for investors on the, over the medium term. Okay, Roger, thank you so much for joining us on Free Lunch. Really appreciate it. Now, thank you for having me. Really great questions. Thank you. Okay, well, that was a really interesting conversation with Roger. Anything stick out to you, Sarah? I think what is lingering for me still is this idea of that there are risks about like getting almost like too excited about rate cuts on the horizon. And I wonder if there to some degree will be kind of just like a pile on in terms of like, are we going to see kind of a bit of like a rally in the first half of the year? Are markets going to perform really strongly because people think rate cuts are on the horizon? And then it's interesting to kind of learn about the example that it's like, okay, well, this has happened and we've had to backpedal in the past and things have not really turned out as as they seem. And so that's the piece I think that I took away and I'm very interested to continue watching. What about you? Right. Yeah, I think the uh, the point he made about the importance of the credibility of central banks in suppressing people's expectations about inflation was was really interesting and maybe something that didn't exist during the last big bout of inflation that we had. Um, I don't know. I'd like to learn more about the history of that time and how people perceived central banks. Like maybe the action that they took at that time, you know, really raising interest rates high to crush inflation despite causing a recession and unemployment. Maybe that set the stage for people thinking this time, okay, the central banks will take care of it. So we shouldn't expect that prices will be, you know, continuing to grow at this pace a year or two from now. A hundred percent. And it seems to be a theme that continues to come up in conversations. I remember yeah. talking to Brett House from yeah. Columbia Business School. I think he was the first guest that we had on that really drove home just the importance of like also just like sentiment about what is happening at the central bank and, and credibility yeah. uh, from that standpoint and just how the Bank of Canada communicates. And I mean, it's also kind of the first, um, it's one of the first cycles where also I think sentiment is also shaped by you know, things like super widespread news coverage and social media. Like it's interesting. I want to have a completely different conversation just about sentiment yeah. almost and how that shapes things mm. because it continues to come up. And yet that's one of the the things that I feel is something it's just people breeze over it, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's, ba it's barely like it's anything that's important, but it feels increasingly like it has a lot of, of weight in terms of how outcomes are actually shaped. Yeah, totally. It feels like one of these things that is harder to measure or yes probably it why like economists more, don't yeah talk it's about like it. it's kind of hazy and fuzzy and you know you ask people these questions like oh how much do you have for emergency savings and that sort of thing and maybe you get true answers maybe you don't whereas you know you can look at the price of bananas last month and yeah. the price of bananas this month and say okay that's how much it changed but it is such an important thing so i, I do feel i think you're right i think it gets understudied maybe a little bit mm -hmm. okay well should we leave it there for I today think so all right well this has been another episode of free lunch by the peak if you like this you can find more episodes wherever you get your podcast by searching free lunch 
And if you enjoyed it, please do leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We really appreciate it and it helps grow the show. We will see you next week. Bye.